Hello, and welcome to the 23rd episode of Catch Up on Kids' Mental Health. I'm Janet Morrison. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Schiffer, the Executive Director of Native Child and Family Services of Toronto. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, first of all, how did it come to be that Toronto has an agency, especially for Native children and their families? Yeah, certainly. So I think we're all aware now, increasingly in Canada, about the history and impact of residential schooling and and mainstream child welfare. And for a long time, Indigenous communities across Canada were advocating for agencies that they could own and operate to change practices and the impact on children and families. So in the 80s, across Ontario, community members started mobilizing, and they did that in, in the city of Toronto. At that time, sort of the first generation of kids from the 60s scoop were starting to age out. They were flooding into the streets in Toronto. Uh, and it was it was very evident um, the way that that history was, was impacting Indigenous people in the city of Toronto. And so community advocates, elders, knowledge keepers started standing up and saying, we need, we need an organization um, in the city of Toronto, primarily focused on the health and wellness of, of children and families. And Ken Richard, uh, the founder of Native Child, the previous executive director of Native Child, sort of led that charge working with community. Um, and our organization was born in, in 1986. And one of the first things we did actually was have four days of ceremony to develop the service model that, that we have today at Native Child, which really directs us to be a, a multi-service agency integrated uh, in, in culture that really wraps families in, in holistic supports. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit, I, I, I have, have some awareness and appreciation for the work you do, but it seems very broad. It's, a, it's an extensive set of services that you provide. Could you kind of outline for us a little bit what that looks like? I can, yeah. I mean, I always think about the Indigenous phrase, all my relations, right, in which Indigenous people recognize that we are interconnected and interdependent with the world around us. Those those community members that came together to create Native Child and Family Services recognize that you're not going to change or transform or decolonize child welfare simply by doing child welfare. What we needed was uh, um, a holistic system of supports that, that really got to all the root causes that result in families interacting with the child welfare system to begin with, right? And so uh, many people don't know that Native Child actually started as a prevention agency. So for our first 18 years, all we did was youth services, clinical supports. We did things like early on centers, Aboriginal Head Start programs, and we still do all of those things now. It wasn't until 2004 that our agency received the formal provincial mandate as a children's aid society to take on the child protection work. And we were able to do that. We were able to accept that colonial mandate into a circle of strong cultural support services, which served as a foundation for us to actually change that colonial mandate that we were accepting, right? And so our work primarily has been to to take on that colonial mandate of child welfare that we've inherited and understand how to do that differently as directed by Indigenous families, right? And, and to try to provide a lot of early intervention and prevention and holistic supports uh, to keep families out of child welfare. And you can see that in the statistics, right? Today, we um, we run about 140 different programs and services. We've got about 350 staff. You know, the majority of our budget goes to prevention services. And we serve about 8,000 unique individuals every year. And we have less than 250 kids in care, right? So it it, it shows you that the, the vast majority of the work that we are doing is in that prevention space. Well, that is a big change. And I, I know that uh, certainly children across the country uh, are uh, the Indigenous children are overrepresented 
in uh, child welfare and in foster care. So that's a, a huge impact. The impact is large, but we have a lot of work to do. You know, an elder once told me, you know, if it takes 10 days to walk into the bush, how many days does it take to walk out? And I thought that was a trick question, but it really isn't. If it takes 10 days to walk in, it takes 10 days to walk out. Our colonial history in this country is long, right? We have got, you know, 150 years of really destructive practice that we need to undo. So the change isn't going to happen overnight, but we are we are headed in the right direction. And we are we are making important changes on a daily basis together with community. Well, when children are in need of apprehension for whatever reason, is there is it different if they're apprehended by someone in your agency than it would be if they were apprehended by another agency in Toronto? You know, our practice is certainly different. And I will say that we are currently, you know, in the process of creating our new strategic plan and looking at how we continue to improve the way that we work right now. But, you know, Indigenous agencies just operate differently. And we have a lot of other things available to us, like kinship care or customary care. Um, if a child does need to be removed to a place of safety for a temporary period of time, we, we have an entire team dedicated to kinship, to family finding, right? So we have an entire team that all they are doing is looking for extended family, right? Um, making connections in that child's community and looking to place with extended family and, and or community connections, right? So, so a lot of our, so we have, we use group care a lot less, you know, we use private foster homes a lot less. We use community and extended family a lot more. Uh, and the conversation is different because it's also a conversation about what does your family need to get back to a, um, a, a place of wellness and how can we help with all of those multiple programs and services we offer? Well, that is a big change. And I know when I was having a lot of contact with youth in care and in group homes and in foster care, the Indigenous children were long and far removed from their communities and there was no commitment or certainly ability from the commitment to, to keep those children close to their cultural ties and their cultural roots. And many of them grew up in very alienated circumstances. And there are still a lot of barriers. I mean, I don't want to candy coat any of this. I mean, there are huge barriers to placing children in the north and their home communities when those communities simply don't have the infrastructure for those placements, right? So we do struggle. And and, but um, I think that we are committed to working with um, those nations and the, and the resources we have available in the city of Toronto um, to do our best in those scenarios. Well, I guess the commitment is the first stage, the first step you need. Yeah, guess, and innovation too, right? Like I think, I think, and I think that I mean, I think back. So we started um, the first urban indigenous healing lodge uh, in in Ontario uh, a couple of years ago, and and that's just I just want to highlight this as one example because we have a home that we purchased where there are you know uh, a number of if, if if a young mother is struggling with mental health or concrete needs or what the system would typically call neglect, and she she would normally be a target for. For, for apprehension. We now have a home where that mother can go together with her child. It's a staff resource. The removal doesn't even have to happen. She can stay there while she's wrapped with supports and gets what she needed, and then we can move her. And so, I mean, it's those types of innovations that make all the difference, right? We do need to think about how do we build a, a different system where there are many more alternatives to, to having to remove a child to a place of safety. Those risks can often be mitigated in the home or mitigated in a place where mom and her child stays together, right? And those are some of the service innovations we're steadily working towards. Well, that's great because we all know that the stresses for young mothers of isolation and, and poverty are, are just, you know, horrible. And so what you're doing is dealing with a crisis before the crisis happens. Right. Yes. And that's yeah. great. So I understand that you're currently reviewing the work of your agency, partly as a result of the enactment of Bill C-92 in 2019. 
Could you first explain to us what Bill C-92 says and then maybe what you're doing in response? Yeah, gladly. So Bill, 90, Bill C-92 is a new piece of federal legislation, right? It, it came, went from bill to an act. It's now, ugh, I'm going to mess it up, but it's like the act respecting First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children and families or something, some iteration Pretty like good. that. <laughs> and, and really what it does is... Um, what it does is allow indigenous governing bodies, so First Nations, Métis, and Inuit political entities, to create their own federal legislation for child and family well-being. Uh, it's important to note that that legislation doesn't only cover child protection, but it can also cover what we often talk about as prevention services. And these laws can cross jurisdictions, so they can not only be implemented within the reserve community of that nation, but they can be implemented off reserve, right? So, so this is very exciting. I mean, I think another thing that's important to note is that these groups, you know, Indigenous people across Canada have always had inherent jurisdiction over child and family well-being. So this act does not create that for them, right? Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution recognizes that. Agencies like Native Child have always recognized that. We always historically have, have worked with First Nations and Inuit and Métis folk to understand how we can best serve their community members when they're in the city of Toronto. What this does, though, is it provides a new avenue for those nations to formalize and exercise that inherent right through uh, legislation that will supersede provincial legislation around child welfare. And in fact, a lot of other um, provincial and federal laws. It's still subject to certain things like, you know, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the best interest of the child. So there are some criticisms, criticisms there, um, but it's a new avenue. And as we've seen through the new agreement in principle, you know, the government has just put $40 billion, B with a billion on the table, right? 20 of which will go to compensation for, for families that are for children and families harmed by the child welfare system. But the other 20 for reform, for reform of the system, which will help to actually implement this legislation. So I would say for us at Native Child, this is as exciting as it is daunting. And it is daunting because of the diversity and complexity in which we work as an urban service provider in Canada's largest city, right? So we don't just serve one First Nations or two or 12 or 20, right? At any given time, we're serving over 90 different First Nations plus Métis and Inuit people, not just from Ontario, but from across Canada, right? So how many pieces of legislation are we gonna see? Uh, how many pieces of legislation do our social workers need to understand how to implement? What does that look like? How do we not get our wires crossed? Uh, what if a child identifies with three different First Nations? Which law do we use, right? There's a lot of complexity here. And while the law does reference some of those things, the uh, the act, I should say, does reference how some of those things are mitigated, it's so new that really none of this has been tested. So we are starting, as Indigenous people do, with conversation and relationship, right? We, we have been... Uh, um, speaking with First Nations across Ontario, we've, I myself have gone to the Chiefs of Ontario and the Assembly of First Nations to talk about our role as an agency within this process. And we've been convening, in fact, over the last two years, we've been holding these national forums on Indigenous child and family well-being, where we are inviting agencies like ours from across Canada to come and meet in a circle and talk about what does our role look like within this evolving process? And again and again, when I meet with my colleagues from across the country, uh, we come to the same conclusion. And that's really that urban Indigenous service providers within the context of this space, we are here as helpers. Our role is to help 
indigenous governing bodies exercise their inherent jurisdiction, right? And that help can look a lot of different ways, right? It can it can look like a nation coming to Native Child and saying, this is our law, this is what you got to do when you're serving our community members in the city of Toronto. Or it could look like a nation saying, this is our law and we've got a lot of community members in the city of Toronto and we would like to exercise that law and deliver those services ourselves, right? Which is another possibility. And in that scenario, we say, well, that's great. Do you need some office space? Do you need some referrals to other services? You know, how can we be helpful in, in, in that process? Well, I'm assuming that there are going to be complicated funding kinds of issues that would arise uh, with the complexity of the administration and delivery of those services. Is that something that your agency will have some control over or is that something that you'll have to kind of you're sitting and waiting on the sidelines? Well, you know, it's something that I've spoken a lot about, but don't necessarily feel like I've got a lot of control over. I mean, this is the business of First Nations and we are uh, we are an urban agency. So while we certainly share our perspective on this matter, this is up to the Indigenous governing bodies and the government to work out through tripartite agreements, right? And that process is unfolding. I will say that I have concerns about that process. You know, this, this bill became an act without any dedicated funding prior to the agreement in principle. There really isn't a clear link between the, 40, the $20 billion for reform and the implementation of C92. And the formulas that Indigenous Services Canada is using to work out funding through things like the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal works off of census data that really undercounts the Indigenous population in problematic ways. We know Statistics Canada is good at a lot of things. They've never been good at counting Indigenous people. It's a tricky thing. So it's not for lack of trying. But um, I am concerned about whether or not nations are going to have enough funding to be able to do this, not only on reserve, but quite frankly, off reserve, right? The economy of scale is a huge issue here. If you have, you know, 12 to 35 members spread across 10 large cities in Canada, uh, it's not feasible to have an office in each of those spaces or a small satellite office or, uh, you know, the handful of staff needed to deliver those services. So what does that look like? Right. And I think that I think that what we need to have are more conversations, quite frankly, between First Nations um, and, you know, their political organizations and service providers about how we work together. And when things like this get real complex, the best thing to do within this space is to keep kids at the center, right? We got to remember why we are all here, right? We are here for the wellness and the health and the prosperity of Indigenous children and their families and their communities. That has to stay at the center, and it makes it a lot. It makes it a lot easier because you got to get the egos out of the room. You got to get organizational budgets out of the room. You got to get strategic plans out of the room. You got to get the, the 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 passion for the wellness of kids in the center of the room, and that's where we need to work from. Um, and I think that when we do that, it's pretty clear from my perspective that a lot of conversations uh, have been missing throughout this process. Uh, and so that's sort of central to a lot of the work that we're going to be doing in the fall uh, as we go out to nations and say, 100%, this is all about your jurisdiction. But what are the realities of, of how your community members need to be served in the city of Toronto? It's a big city, right? With over 80,000 Indigenous people from across Canada. What we need is a robust service framework to be able to get folks what they need when they need it. Well, given the complexities, as you've clearly outlined, of, of this process and the number of people involved and the number of agencies and, and the funding complications, how long do you expect it's going to take for this review to kind of wind down? I mean, I, I'm, you're just winding up, I know, but I know it's this is going to take a really long time. I mean, what we're going to see first is the impact of some changes through so, um. A lot of the, the work of agencies in Ontario recently was changed by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruling led by, you know, Cindy Blackstock and the Caring Society and the AFN and others. And what a, 
I mean, Cindy's a hero of mine. What a phenomenal Canadian leader, just continuing to again and again achieve victory for Indigenous kids, right, for First Nations kids across Canada. Uh, initially, what that ruling did was make agencies eligible for prevention dollars. And so agencies like Native Child and the other dozen or so Indigenous child and family well-being agencies across Ontario really built up our prevention services over the last four years. Uh, the money that we were not getting from the province for, for, for prevention, because I will say, you know, despite our provincial partners uh, trying to do their best within, you know, their understanding of this work, our agencies have been chronically underfunded when it comes to prevention dollars. We were able to really make up that difference through the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, that family finding team that I just mentioned earlier, entirely funded through the federal government. We didn't have the capacity to do that four years ago. Our pre and postnatal team, many of our programs and services that we've developed over the last four years have been funded through the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. This is the last year that our agencies are eligible for funding through that program. As of next fiscal year, funding will go directly to First Nations. Now, that's a good thing. First Nations should be funded to exercise their inherent jurisdiction. I support that 100%. But what are we going to do about the agencies that now have lost literally tens of millions of dollars within the jurisdiction of Ontario? And what happens when all those services collapse? Eh? What happens when, when dozens of, of, of employees no longer are funded and, and, and specialized programs that were keeping kids out of care uh, no longer exist? That family finding program kept over 60 kids out of foster care placements uh, over the last two years alone, right? We did a webinar on this. I'm really desperately trying to find funding to keep that thing going because I know the impact that it makes. So something is going to be lost in this transition. And often when we don't plan things out and have the conversations we need and think about all of the implications, it's kids that end up losing out. And I'm really hoping that we're able to uh, get ourselves together so that um, those needed services can be transferred, right? If our, if our agencies aren't delivering them, who is? And when does that start? And what's the transition plan? Because let's be real, the fiscal year is, is, is going to be over before we know it, right? Yeah. Well, polit politicians, you know, love to say and love to say that they understand the idea that, you know, every dollar that goes to prevention saves them seven or eight in the long run. It's been shown over and over and over and again, but they just don't act on it. They, they, this kind of it, it, across the board in terms of not just children, but in terms of health and well-being and mental health across the whole spectrum. They just don't seem to get the concept, or at least they don't deliver on the concept. It must drive you out of your mind. And the delivery is key. I mean, I think we have enjoyed our involvement in, with uh, with our partners at the province in this current iteration of child welfare redesign, right? We seem to do this every four or five years, right? But this current iteration really is focused on, it. they call it child welfare redesign, but that's a huge misnomer because really it's about, it's about a service system that's broader than child welfare. So our colleagues in government are starting to understand that we need a holistic, integrated system of prevention services that, that do exactly what you're describing, but 100% the proof will be in the pudding. Where's the follow through, right? There's conversations about um, redesigning the funding formula, putting prevention and early intervention at the front, ensuring that those services are adequately funded. Um, of course, the, the, the budget on that remains to be seen. So I do, listen, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I'm hoping that we're going to get, we're going to get something transformative out of this, but every, every now and then we also have to, you know, cling to or understand realism. And you're right, there's been a huge struggle in, in this province and elsewhere in ensuring that the investments are made up front so problems don't become more acute and expensive down the line.
And it's even more important. It's even more important right now because of the way that the pandemic has impacted every all Canadians, but how it's disproportionately impacted Indigenous and racialized people. The need for those prevention services has exponentially increased, right? When you think about all the, the, the and, and then, I mean, you throw the economy in there and inflation and how people are squeezed for, for, for just putting food on the table. It's a bit of a perfect storm. I mean, if we're going to weather it together as Canadians uh, in ways that are grounded in reconciliation and equity, we have to be focused on marginalized people. We have to be focused on Indigenous people. And we have to be focused on integrated service systems where prevention is well-funded. Well, that's a, it's a great message. And I think we can kind of end on that. You've given us a great deal of information and a lot to think about, Jeff. And I'm very grateful for our conversation today. So I, I wish you great patience and good luck and good conversations as you go forward in this, in this very important enterprise. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me today. Well, Jeff certainly gave us a great deal of information about the issues facing their organization and the issues generally facing the Indigenous peoples across the country. So I think many of us may have to listen to that conversation a couple of times to take in the the wealth of information and the detail that he provided. For those of you who would be interested in learning a little bit more about Native Child and Family Services, you can go to nativechild.org. That's it for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Janet Morrison.